Ephesians, the second chapter, and please follow the reading as I read verses 1 through 5. Let us hear God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Please imagine with me that you go to your doctor for your annual thorough physical. Numerous tests are done, including perhaps an MRI to accurately examine the condition of vital organs. Several vials of blood are taken for a detailed blood analysis. Two or three days later, you receive a phone call from a nurse or maybe from the office administrator informing you that your health is very good, a slight bit of anemia, but uh, that will be easily corrected with the use of an inexpensive supplement. But suppose the follow-up phone call is from your physician. And he or she says, please come to my office tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. There are important matters that we need to discuss. You are not perfectly calm when you arrive the next morning. And your doctor says the results of all of our testing were not good. It's clear that you have pancreatic cancer. And the malignancy has spread to three or four other vital organs, the cancer has widely metastasized, chemo would not be effective, and you probably have two or three months to spend with your family and friends. Now, I'm sure the best of physicians have more sensitive ways to communicate such a diagnosis, but I'm inviting that sober line of thought this evening because when we open the Bible, when we open Scripture to seek God's diagnosis of our spiritual condition without Jesus Christ, the information we get about ourselves is much more like that second dreaded phone call that we might have received. But my friends, the Bible gives us thorough, accurate spiritual diagnosis as a way of making all the more clear, all the more compelling, the message, the central message of the Bible that we usually refer to as the gospel, the good news. The initial diagnosis does not help us with our supposed need to build our self-esteem. The initial diagnosis does not serve uh, popular ideas uh, that uh, we are all finding our way to God, we're all working our way up toward God, and uh, God is really quite comfortable with whatever way we choose, just 
so long as we're sincere with ourselves. The initial diagnosis will not lead us to think that we have some mere spiritual weakness, but our free wills can choose to change that if we just wake up a little bit spiritually and make use of our marvelous free will. That's not the diagnosis. That's not the information, my friends, that we get in the Bible. And I say all of that because this second chapter of Ephesians is going to lay before us the marvels of God's grace in rescuing people like you and like me. But the opening verses that we read a few moments ago give us, shall we say, the bad news. The Bible is full of good news. It's primarily about good news, but somewhere along the way, we will never appreciate the good news unless we understand and receive soberly the bad news. Now, we're going to focus primarily this evening on verses 1 to 3, but I want to briefly make three observations on the larger context, and then we'll give our attention to the opening verses. Number one, the broader context closely puts together what Paul has just said about Christ at the end of chapter 1, and now what he's going to say about us. You note that chapter 2 begins with, and you. Now, what's the point of the and you? The point is to connect what he's going to say to us about what he's just said concerning Christ. He has been exalted to the right hand of God. He's been raised out of the dead, exalted to reign and rule, and, and you. You have been raised up with him. And you see, this becomes even more clear when you recognize, or when, when we recognize, that the main verb here in chapter 2 isn't given by Paul until verse 5. And you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But Paul goes on to describe that condition apart from Christ, without Christ. And then when he comes to verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in other words, he backs up and says, now, now remember, we were dead in our trespasses. Verse 5 again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the main verb, made us alive with Christ. And you were made alive with Christ. That's the main thrust of the passage. Second observation, the broader context makes clear the great contrast between our past and our present. There is a stark difference, such an amazing, gripping difference between, between what we were in the past and what we are now. That's actually made clear by the use of a literary device that is usually called an inclusio. Now, an inclusio, it's used all over the Bible. It's used in narrative. It's used in the Psalms. When you're reading the Psalms, note how often the way a psalm begins will be parallel with the way it ends. The note that you see at the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist will come back to it and you'll sound, he'll sound, the very same note at the end of the psalm. And, and it's a way the Spirit of God has of saying, keep this together. Keep this all together. Now, there's an inclusio here. Look at verse 2. 
these sins and trespasses in which you once walked. That's the way you lived. That's the way you conducted yourself. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There was a way that we walked, but it's no longer the way that we walk. Keep it together, says the apostle. And then third observation, the broader context reminds us that God's saving purposes are both individual and corporate. The emphasis in verses 1 to 10 is on, is in what, pardon me, is on what God does in us and toward us as individuals to bring us individually to Christ, to unite us individually to Him. But look at verse 11, therefore remember that at once, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh. Now Paul is going to begin to talk about what God is doing to save, not just individuals, but to save a people. God is saving a flock, a congregation, a holy nation. And that means, my friends, that we must reject and stand against the excessive individualism that dominates our own day, and we'll come back to that before we're done this evening. Well, let's look then at verses 1 to 3 here in chapter 2, and there are three things that Paul says clearly about our past condition. We were spiritually dead, we were wickedly enslaved, we were divinely condemned. We were spiritually dead, verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And three things should be understood by this language of spiritual death. And let me acknowledge my debt to John Eady, a Scottish Presbyterian commentator. For many years, it was the best commentary that we had on Ephesians. Some more recent commentaries are probably more useful than Eady, but... I'm very much in debt to Edie this evening. And he identifies these three things clearly communicated by death. Number one, spiritual death means that we were once alive. If I say the man is dead, that means that he was alive. If we look at a tree and say the tree is dead, the tree was once a living thing. But in what way can it be said that we were once alive? And if we think broadly, if we think about the whole Bible, I'm persuaded that there's only one way in which we can say we were once alive spiritually, and that is in the first Adam. We were alive. Remember, we were in the first Adam, right? He was a representative person. All of us were included. All of us were legally included with the first Adam. The first Adam was a public person. He was there in the Garden of Eden, and he was functioning on behalf of others. Everybody who would ever be born. Everybody in this room. Now, you know, we don't like that. You know, some of us will say, I've never seen Adam's name on a, on a, on a ballot when I went on election day. I never voted for Adam uh, to be my representative. Well, no. God didn't ask any of us. In fact, he didn't even ask Adam. 
He just said, this is the way it's going to be. And in Adam, we were once alive. But we died in Adam. Because in Adam's fall, we all did indeed fall. Secondly, spiritual death means complete insensitivity to the beauty of God and the glories of Christ. Put the most beautiful fresh rose to the nose of a dead man, and he will not twitch his nose, and he will not take a deep breath. Hold before the eyes of a dead person the photo of a beautiful sunset that you just took the other day when the sun falls down below the Blue Ridge Mountains, and take that photo, maybe you took it with your smartphone, and put that in the front of a dead man, and he will not smile and take a deep breath. Yes, the spiritually dead person still has a conscience, and his conscience should be the object of our appeals. The spiritually dead person retains natural affections, and God may choose to awaken natural affections and bring a person closer to gospel influences through the effect of God's grace on those natural affections. But the spiritually dead sinner cannot spiritually see the glories of God revealed in the face of Christ until God puts life in his dead soul. And we call that regeneration. So spiritual death means that we were once alive. Spiritual death means the loss of any sensitivity to spiritual things. And thirdly, spiritual death means total inability to respond savingly savingly to Christ. Our Lord said it clearly himself in John 6, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yes, we hear a statement like that, and, and we're ready to say, well, then how does, God, how does God really hold me accountable? I mean, if I can't come, if I don't have any ability to come, then uh, I'm helpless, right? I'm, I'm dead in sin. I'm... I'm without any hope, and how can God hold me accountable? Well, all of those sins, all of those sins that we actually commit are not forced upon us, are they? We freely choose those sins. We grab onto our sins, and we will even defend them to other people if anyone calls this into question. Note also, before we leave verse 1, note also the two words that Paul uses in verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, some commentators take those two words, trespasses and sins, to just be a very broad reference to all kinds of sin. But John Stott, I believe, is on target when he underscores what these two words more precisely mean. Trespasses is the Greek word peripateo, and it means literally over a boundary. Peri over, pateo, over a boundary, over a line. And God, by his word, by his law, says, don't do that. Don't go there. And the human heart again and again says, I will go there. I will step over that line. And then the second word, 
is the word hamarteo, which literally means to miss the mark. And John's thought falls back on the familiar, the familiar, pardon me, the familiar couplet, sins of commission and sins of omission. All those sins, every kind of sin, things that we ought not do, we say we will do. Don't go there, I will go there. Don't talk that way, I will talk that way. And then there is failure to measure up. There's always the missing of the mark. And remember, my friends, the mark. When you say miss the mark, what is the mark? Well, it's, it's not. It's not the moral qualities of the people you see around you. You know, if we inspect ourselves, if we make judgments about ourselves compared to other people, we can always find somebody who, who seems to be worse than we are. But that's not the standard. The mark is the character of God himself. It's the holiness of God. It's his law. And again and again, we miss the mark. We were spiritually dead. But secondly, we were wickedly enslaved. Look at verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. In these sins and trespasses, you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And Paul lays here, lays out here, our formal spiritual slavery in terms of the world and Satan and our flesh, that is, our own sinfulness. We walked or we conducted ourselves according to literally the age of the world. Now, the Christian community in my lifetime has experienced a significant shift with regard to worldliness. I was reared in a family, and I was reared in a church where there was a lot of talk about worldliness, and there was general agreement about what the bad thing was, worldliness, certain forms of entertainment. I remember the Youth for Christ director in Charleston, West Virginia, who would say, do you want Jesus to come back? When you're in a movie theater, is that where you want to be when Jesus returns? Oh, don't go there. Certain bad places Christians should never go. Certain kinds of dress that Christians should always avoid. Now, was that overly simplistic? Was there too much externalism in all that discussion about worldliness? Probably. Probably. It was overly simplistic. Probably a little too much externalism. And yet, my friends, there are plenty of statements from Jesus and the apostles about worldliness. It's a real danger. And the one that we have here in verse 2, according to the age of this world, understanding 
that clearly, I believe, will be of great benefit to us for our own spiritual good and as we seek to communicate the gospel to the world in which we're now living. And what, what Paul is saying, the age of this world, is that these people walked in the sins that were dominant in their culture. Now, I realize that there's, there's certain things that are obvious in every fallen culture. Every fallen culture, regardless of when, where, uh, there's pride. There's unbelief. There's idolatry. But there are certain sins that are peculiar to certain times and places and are not necessarily uh, being, threat, uh, uh, being a threat to the people of God in every place and every time. Listen, for instance, to this one statement of Paul. If with Christ you died to the elemental elemental spirits of the world, this is Colossians 2.20, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Now what kind of regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. What's, what's Paul referring to? Well, he's referring here in Colossians uh, to a certain kind of asceticism. It was an early form of Gnostic thought, and it entailed radical denial of bodily appetites, rigorous forms of fasting, asceticism. Now, how many members of Grace Church, we can ask Pastor Evans this and Pastor Carroll, how many members of Grace Church in the last six months have come into your office for counseling because they're struggling with ascetic tendencies and they're refusing food? Pastor John? Zero. Ah, okay. So, so, so what Paul had to talk to the Colossians about, which was a real threat to them in that time and that place, uh, we're not currently struggling here at Grace Church. There are certain sins which have a peculiar power in a time and place. Listen to Edie again. The age of the world. The meaning is that the Ephesians, in their unregenerate condition, had lived not generally like others of unholy heart, but specifically like the contemporary world around them. And in the practice of those vices and follies that gave color to their own era and time, they did not pursue indulgences popular at some other time, but now obsolete and forgotten. They did not serve the idols of other centuries. No, they lived in the age as was around them on all sides in its popular, dominant deceits and delusions. They walked in complete conformity to the reigning sins of their time. I believe that's what the apostle is saying. You were enslaved 
not just generally to some bad habits, but to the things that dominated your culture. Now, if I pause here and said, let's have a discussion. Tell me what you think are the dominant sins of this culture right now where we're living. I'm sure you would give intelligent answers. But I'm the preacher this evening. And, and so I've had to make my own judgment about what sins are particularly prominent in our day. And I have four things to underscore. The age in which we're living is one in which there is the dominance of material wealth and the love of ease. Now, we have long been a materialistic society. You can point to clear manifestations of materialism in ancient cultures, certainly in, all, in our whole history. But that sin has now deepened and is now wedded to a love of ease. Don't bother me with problems and issues. Man, I've got my full cable TV. I got plenty to eat and drink in the fridge. And when the grass needs cut, I can call that truckload of Hispanics to show up with their lawnmowers and their trimmers, and my lawn will look like new in 37 minutes when I pay the nice boys and they go on. And my friends, there's no such thing as a gospel of material wealth and love of carnal ease. The biblical gospel is always a call to self-denial and cross-bearing. All through this Lord's Day, we've been speaking about and preaching about our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reflecting again and again in songs and in the ministry of the Word and what's been read from Scripture. We've been reflecting on what He's done, what He's accomplished for us, and He never accomplished it by carnal ease. He never fulfilled His saving mission by saying, i got to take it easy on myself. No. The apostles would never have taken the gospel to the world if they had been controlled by desire for an easy life. And then I'm persuaded that we're living in a time and place that is dominated by what I'm going to call exaggerated individualism and isolation. Is there a proper individualism? Is there a biblical individualism? Yes, there is. Yes. You were born as an individual. You're accountable to God as an individual. You will stand before God as an individual. Everyone. Barack Obama will not stand before God with Michelle and his two beautiful daughters. And Donald Trump will not stand with, with Malia, or pardon me, Melania. He will not stand with Melania and his millions of dollars. 
both those men will stand before God as naked sinners and give an account. And that's the way we'll stand. But you see, ours is a time in which material wealth opens a door for an isolation and an individualism that up until the last few decades was unthinkable. A person can have a job, a, a, a good job, a job that pays well. And, 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 a, and a person can have a couple of computers in a room all by himself or all by herself and do the job and never be accountable to anyone. They don't, they don't, they don't punch a clock. There's not a supervisor, you know, that's going to walk around and check on them at the end of the day. No, they're totally isolated all by themselves. And instead of challenging this crass individualism and isolationism, the church more and more accommodates it. The church more and more wants to find a way to let people feel comfortable in their isolation and individualism. This past Friday morning, we had a, we had a packed room early Friday morning. There were four of us. So, brothers, there's room for you. But one of the men turned to a passage in Hebrews, and he asked, what does that mean? He turned to Hebrews 3, verse 12, and he read, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And he asked the question, if he's writing to brothers, how can he warn brothers about the danger of falling away from the living God? It's a very good question. It's an excellent, it's an important question. And we spent almost the whole hour discussing this text. But listen to it. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, what's the solution? What's the remedy? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, lest none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, whatever that is, whatever that means, it rules out individualism and isolationism that goes into church for an hour on Sunday morning and puts a check in the offering plate and maybe sings a couple of songs and then goes out comfortably and lives to oneself. It rules it out. No place for it. Exaggerated individualism and isolation. Thirdly, this age is characterized especially by sexual lawlessness, magnified by a shamelessness. Sexual lawlessness is not new. You know, there were homosexual men that surrounded uh, that house uh, where, who was it, Abraham? Lot, thank you, thank you. 
that house where, where Lot was being given hospitality. That's in the early chapters of the Bible. And Romans chapter 1, the second half of Romans chapter 1, makes clear that sexual lawlessness is nothing new. But now it's joined to a shamelessness so that we now have parades in which sexual lawlessness is celebrated. But there's one more age of this world, sins particularly dominant in our time and place that I believe ought to be underscored. And that is on what I'm going to call finger-pointing accusation and self-righteousness. You see, ours is a day in which the political divide has deepened. And that's led to perpetual finger-pointing. They are the problem. He is the cause of the problems in Washington and at the border. She is the reason millennials expect to get everything given to them. And my friends, I don't have any hope that it's going to stop in Washington. I mean, God could. God, God could pour out his spirit on our nation's capital and lawmakers and lobbyists and the 40,000 lawyers that live in D.C., do you know that? Do you know there are 40,000 lawyers in D.C.? Every one of them could be prostrate, on the ground, face down, calling on God. God could do that. But I must confess that I'm not expecting all the finger-pointing to stop in Washington this coming week. It may well get worse. It seems to be getting worse, doesn't it? But what I'm pleading, brothers and sisters, that is that we, as Christian people, we can refuse to be a part. I'm not suggesting that we cast aside our concern about public morality. I'm not suggesting that we become apolitical. We may support candidates. We may choose individually Take up a cause. Why do I say individually to take up a cause? I say that because you want to take up a cause. Don't expect the elders of Grace Church to hop, hop on the bandwagon with you. None of us have the right. None of us have the right to take on an issue, to say, oh, I'm going to do something about this. Man, I'm going to be active. Go to it. Christian man, Christian woman. Become an activist. Join an organization out there somewhere that will help you pursue some legitimate issue. But don't expect the church to adopt your issue. We have a very specific, isolated calling from God. And that should enable us, by God's grace, to do away with the kind of finger-pointing it's tearing our nation apart. Now, why do I take so much time on this one phrase, the age of the world? 
I do so because what happens with these culturally dominant sins is that two of our great spiritual enemies are then working in concert. Paul is concerned in our passage here in Ephesians 2 about the world, the flesh, the devil. And what I've been describing, my friends, means that the world and our flesh are coming together. And there is this double trouble for us spiritually. And that has profound implications for us in evangelism as well as our own Christian growth and safety. So the apostle says we were wickedly enslaved to the world. The present age that wants to blot out any reflection on the age to come. But then Paul says we were wickedly enslaved to satanic power. Look at verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, formerly, formerly our flesh, our sins were dominant, but also Satan himself ruled us. Now, Someone may say, well, Pastor Randy, you've really gone over the top now. I mean, I, you know, I know I've, I'm not perfect and I've got some real moral problems, but, but are you saying I'm, I'm ruled by Satan, by the devil? Remember this. Please remember this. Satan has all kinds of ways of capturing our hearts and, cap and controlling our lives with one purpose, to keep our spiritual eyes blinded to the beauty of Christ. And ultimately, he doesn't care whether someone is a drug addict or someone is the most upright, respectable businessman in the Roanoke Valley and, and takes care of his family and, and contributes to uh, uh, charitable causes. So long, so long as Satan has something to keep us from seeing ourselves as we are and then to keep us from seeing the beauty of Christ and God revealing himself in the Lord Jesus so that we fall down before Christ and say, I must have him. Satanic power. And then I want to just look at one phrase in verse 3. Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, the children of wrath. And I'm going to cut to the chase and make this as plain as I know how. Let's go to one of the area hospitals where newborns have just come into the world. It's not called a nursery. What's the name? There's, isn't there a fancy name for, you know, where all those little babies 
are, you know, they're under a lamp, you know. Neonatal, is that, is that it? Okay. Where all the little babies are. Okay? So let's go to one of the area hospitals. Let's go to that unit. And there's 30 babies in that unit. Beautiful little babies. Black, brown, a few white kids. Are they all at 48 hours? Let's just say they've been around for two days. Are all 30 babies lying in that special unit, are they all under the wrath of God and deservingly so? Now that's what Paul is saying. By nature, by birth, by birth, when we got here, in fact, there are some texts you could even talk about before we got out, you know, to start breathing and, and crying, according to Psalm 51, are they all under God's wrath, deserving of hell? Now, I am not asking what will happen to those 30 babies if they die in 48 hours. I'm not asking that because there are biblical considerations that some of us might understand to be reasons why all 30 babies, if they died in 48 hours, would go to heaven. There might be some things in the Bible that would encourage that perspective. But if all of those 30 babies die at 48 hours and go to heaven, it's not because they're nice, pretty, little, innocent babies. It's only because the electing grace of God in Christ has made provision for them and they're taken to be with the Savior who gave his life for them. by nature, children of wrath. Well, my time is gone. We all know that, don't we? I want to close with three brief exhortations. Number one, let every Christian believe afresh what he or she has been saved from. My friends, when we fall into a laziness, and, I, and, and I, listen, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning what it is more than I ever have before. You know, I preached the last two Lord's Day mornings at Wellspring Presbyterian. And uh, after both morning services, I got fed well. I got my nap. And when I've preached on a Lord's Day morning, and then I'm fed well, and then I take a nap, and I wake up about 4 o'clock, you know what sometimes comes to my mind? I sometimes say, how did you ever get dressed again and go out 220 to that beautiful little church building and preach again? How? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how I did it. I can't imagine how I preached twice every Lord's Day. New Testament exposition in the morning, Old Testament exposition in the evening. 
And I spent more time on the evening, by the way. I gave more time to preparing for the evening than the morning because I figured the people that come in the morning, they're going to be there. You know, if, if, I just, if, I just, if I'm just passable, if I'm just passable, they'll be there in the morning. But people that come back in the evening, they're going to get my best. That's where I gave most of my time and energy. So I, I'm understanding. I know, I know keenly what weariness is like. But, oh, brothers and sisters, by God's grace, let us seek, let us seek renewed strength to keep on pressing ahead because there is so much at stake to see people like this delivered from their lost, hell-bound condition. And then let every Christian witness soberly remember what he's going to confront in this age. And then I say in closing, let every person now without Christ recognize how desperately you need him. You, you, you need Christ. If it were possible, if it were possible for us to, you know, give three things to do. Uh, start reading your Bible. Uh, come to church at least three times a month. Uh, clean up your act at home. Stop, stop being so crabby at home and, and, and be nice to your family. But that wouldn't make any radical difference. That wouldn't do it, my friends. Our hearts, our needy hearts are described in this passage and there's only one remedy for it and that remedy is Christ the Lord. He died on the cross and gave up his life in the place of sinners and he invites sinners like me and sinners like you to fall down before him and take him. So take hold of him and never let him go. And you'll be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are... <clears throat> We are so weak in ourselves, we, we stray and wander about so quickly. But we thank you that your word again and again calls us back to reality, calls us again to see ourselves as we are, and your word continually holds out all that Christ is and all that he's done for sinners like ourselves. So bring us afresh to him tonight for his glory. We pray in his name. Amen.